everyone, and welcome to The Geek Rant, episode 249, I Hear You Knockin', recorded August 21st, 2016, and brought to you by Element OP Productions, elementop.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the only show on the internet where geeks rant, The Geek Rant Podcast. I am your host, Mark, the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockerel, and joining me this week, as always, no, no, not really, um, as once before... Um, is uh, your friend and mine, Seth, the gooey kid Anderson, and newcomer slash old guy, uh, Miles, uh, we need a name yet, uh, uh, Wakeham. Hey, guys. Hey, everybody. I am so glad to be here for this bonus episode of Geek Rant. And I have absolutely no idea what I'm supposed to say at this point here. (laughs) So I'll just say I'm here to rant. All right. Yeah, so we told you last week we wouldn't be recording this week because Chris was going to be out uh, with family obligations, and uh, Seth was supposed to be flying out for work, but apparently um, that didn't happen. Yes, my uh, travel plans got pushed back one week, but then also extended one week. So this week I was supposed to be leaving for two weeks, but next week I'm leaving for three, maybe. I don't know yet. And then what comes after that is a greater mystery still. And if you're confused, imagine how I feel. You know, if you're you're a single man living, you know, that kind of life, it's kind of fun. But if I told my wife and daughters, hey, I'm leaving sometime and being and I'll be back sometime, it wouldn't work for me. Right. And and here I am thinking you're flying on Delta. (laughs) No, it's uh, it's um, work related. What happened, the company that I am contract, I'm working for a contracting company, temp slash contracting company, and our, their client, um, put everything on hold while they redid their scheduling. And originally that put on hold was a one week thing. And now it seems to have turned into a two week. If it turns into a three week, then I think I'm going to have to get another job. So <laughs> there is that. Yeah. Steady employment is a, is an important thing. Uh, well, you know, having money is an important thing, and <laughs> if it comes through steady employment, then that's a good thing. So, and we'll we'll talk a little bit uh, a little later on about your uh, other plans to 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 have money without working. Um, but <laughs> for the moment, uh, Chris, as I said, is not here for uh, family reasons. You know, that's the reason every uh, CEO gives for stepping down from a company. I need to spend more time with their family. They never say I ran the company into the ground and the board fired me. Um, but I will say Chris will be back next week. However, that will be his last show. He is stepping down to spend more time with family. In other words, he ran the company into the ground and the board fired him. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, you uh, if you're a regular listener to the show, you know that Chris has been off and on uh, a lot more over the last, uh, you know, several months. His his day job has demanded more of him and his family is demanding more of him. So uh, Chris will be back next week for his final show. Um and we're we're not sure what we're gonna do. Uh, it would be fun to do like a listener roast, right? That 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 means that you guys are gonna have to really quickly, much more quickly than you typically turn around, send me like some some something to say, uh, maybe some clips to dig up or something like that. But it might be fun to we we want to send Chris off in style. Uh, but this is an open-ended leave of absence at this point. Uh, he's not fired. Uh, he's he's not quitting. He's just stepping away for an undetermined amount of time. Um, and uh, we had the opportunity to uh, to have Miles come back. And uh, I don't know that Miles is going to be here for an undetermined open-ended time, but he's here tonight. So welcome, Miles. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. 
and uh, and we're just gonna we're just gonna talk tonight about uh, one of his uh, passions. It's probably passion is probably not a strong enough word. Obsessions, um, and that is uh, uh, network security, edge uh, security. Um, that's sort of what he does. His company does that sort of thing. Uh, and so we're going to talk a little bit about that. Hence the type of topic. I hear you knocking. Uh, but first, uh, we uh, we have some inane dribble to talk about. Uh, <laughs> Rick in the chat room. Yes, I, I know that you're shocked to hear that Chris is leaving. It's it you know it's a thing. I I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because there's not a lot to be said. But uh, uh, he'll say more about it next week maybe. Uh, but anyway, uh, Seth is still continuing his 5K a month thing. I'm really proud of you, man. I, that's the dumbest thing in the world to say because I had nothing to do with it. It doesn't reflect on me in any way. But still, uh, there aren't other words to say. I'm really proud of you. And uh, and you went uh, you went an extra, uh, not really an extra mile. It was still a 5K, but you did things a little different this time. Yeah. Um. So, you know, I was looking because I wasn't supposed to be here next week. I was like, okay, I got to find something for this past weekend and so there was one it was in lake grapevine which is like almost 100 miles from my house and uh so i had to wake up at four and me getting up at four o'clock on a saturday you don't understand the level of commitment that involves but uh so i get there at about 6 30 so i can do the late check-in and stuff only to find out it's been rain delayed for an hour so then i go sit in my car come back at eight there was a little bit of lightning so it was delayed till 10 so I had to get up at four o'clock for a 10 a.m. trail run. And I thought, okay, you know, about 40 minutes. Cause that's what I do at 5k in. No, I barely finished under an hour because trail runs are freaking hard, especially after a rain in a mud soaked course. So, um, but yeah, so it, it was, it was actually kind of fun because, you know, it was just kind of running through the woods and, you know, when they're doing the trail thing, the ladies up there saying, okay, be sure and stay to the middle of the trail. If you get on either side of them, that's where it gets really soggy and fall off. So, you know, the first tenth of a mile maybe is you're running up the road to the turnoff to go on the trail. And then I get in the trail and I'm like, it's a, it's like a freaking rabbit trail. It's like, my foot is as wide as this trail, wider in some places. And so I can't keep to the middle. But, um, you know, and then there was this one climb and you ran through some little streams that had kind of, you know, they were rain swollen. So they kind of came up past my ankles. And But it was it was fun. It was very tiring. And my legs, I mean, when I run on concrete, you know, because I'm a very fat man, it hurts like my knees and legs. But so this was cool because it wasn't running on concrete, but like my quads are killing me. So. Yay, running. Woohoo. Next thing you know, you'll be doing Spartan races. You know, I want my goal when I started out this, I thought, oh, I'll be up to maybe a half marathon by the end of the year. But no, my goal is to maybe do a 10K on December 31st. But no, I would love to do like the Spartan races, the little obstacle course things, because I did last year a zombie themed obstacle course. It was a lot of fun. Uh, it was a lot of fun. So, I would like to do more of those, but, you know, I got to get in better shape. And unfortunately, all this running is done. It's kind of kept me marking time. So I got to recommit uh, again for the first time ever. Right. So, hey, Seth, is it really hot when, when you're running? You know, actually, this weekend, it hasn't been because Texas has apparently been transported to the middle of a rainforest but it rained like literally every day this last week and the high yesterday was i think it got up to 90 and typically it's 
about a hundred. So it really wasn't this week, but it, you know, I do my training runs during the week. Um, those are very hot. I usually try to run at like 11 or 12, so it's not quite as hot, but I'm still soaked through with sweat. I, I was as wet running in the rain almost as I get running in the humidity and being sweat soaked. So typically, but this past weekend, no, it wasn't. All right. I, I, I've been watching the Olympics a lot tonight, uh, probably right about now. The closing ceremonies are going on of the Olympics. And I um, I love the Olympics. I will watch things in the Olympics that I wouldn't watch any other time just because it's the Olympics. Because it's right. I think it's the rarity of it that does it. It's every every four years or every two if you count the alternate summer and winter. Uh, but really, I, I always enjoy watching the best in the world do whatever they do. I really don't enjoy the game of golf at all. But I like watching pro golf. I like watching Tiger Woods golf and, and because it's nice to watch the best in the world do whatever they do. Um, curling. You know, the the most boring sport in the world. I watch it when it's on the Olympics. So I found myself watching the, like the, the men's 5,000 meter, which is a 5K, you know, and uh, a, a reasonably healthy person does a 5K in 30 minutes. These guys are doing it in 13 minutes um, and not even looking like they're struggling. They're just kind of for for most of it. And then it's like the last 400 meters where they really kick it in. And it's a, uh, it's just kind of an amazing thing. I've, you know, to hear you talk about doing a 5k and your times have been 30, 40 minutes, you know, 45, whatever. And, uh, and these guys are doing it in, you know, 15 minutes, uh, on, on the, the, the and the com- commentators will talk about what a slow race it was, you know, 15 minutes. Right. Yeah. No, I was, um, you know, the way they had this course, the 5kers did their course, the 10kers did this one 5k and then came to the 5k course. And so, you know, I've got, maybe a mile or so left and here comes the first 10k or and you know i have to kind of pull over is not really the right word but you kind of just kind of get off the trail for a little bit i seriously consider tripping him and going oops <laughs> just uh <laughs> but uh you know so it's it's that was that made me run when he passed me i was like okay i gotta run for a little bit now but um i just you know I would like to finish the 5K before the 10Kers finish the right. 10K, but at least I got there before the awards ceremony for the 5K, so minor victory. So we were talking about the Olympics as a family, and I don't remember the context of the conversation, but somebody asked about how deep the pool is, because I was commenting on the fact that you know when you watch these guys do water polo, they are swimming the whole time. It's They don't stop ever. You know it, You can't not swim. Uh, and because the water is way over your head and, and they were asking how deep it was. And I said, well, it's at least 10 or 12 feet cause you got to have room for the horse. Um, and, and, and it was just a dad joke, you know, dads make corny jokes. Right. Um, and this was the, maybe the, the first week that we hadn't actually had any water polo on. So yesterday I was in the living room watching water polo and my oldest daughter, come, my oldest 13 now. All right. <laughs> the, she'll be 14 in like six weeks. So the, there's no excuse for this, frankly. She comes down and sits beside me and says, what you watching? I said, water polo. Where are the horses? <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> and, and I was like, what are you talking about? And you said, you told me that there are horses. <laughs> I said, I don't remember that. But yeah, that sounds like something I would say. Um, but she, she took her dad at her word that they must be on horses when they're playing water polo. <laughs> um, but in case you're wondering, the... Uh, um, uh, Rio pool is four meters deep. And, uh, your, the reason that they, they like deeper pools is that makes them faster because the turbulence has more room to spread out. So the swimmers aren't swimming through their own waves. 
because I Googled how deep is the Rio pool because I want to know. And it took me off on this whole big article um, about, you know, what makes a swimming pool fast. Um, and I, hmm. I had, had commented to my wife earlier that like in the London Olympics, I remember they were all wearing these skin uh, suits, these full body shark skin suits. Um, and <laughs> Rick says, he, he said, uh, he said, your daughter should talk to my daughter. Did you know the word gullible is not in the dictionary? Yeah, I could I could totally do that with my daughter. Uh, anyway, uh, I noticed that this time they don't have the skin suits anymore. And so I looked that up, and those were banned after the 2008 Olympics because they felt that it made people too fast. Uh, I think that's kind of dumb. If a suit can make you faster, wear the dang suit and just make sure everybody gets a suit. Uh, but anyway. And then there were still swimming records set this Olympics. Right. Uh, what's her name? Katie Ledecky. Like a, yeah, she's like half dolphin or something, yeah. apparently. She's the Usain Bolt of the pool. Uh, I love watching Usain Bolt. There was there was a great meme. I searched for it on Facebook. You can see it. It's like, wow, that's a really close race. And then the shot pulls out, and there's Usain Bolt like 15 feet ahead of everybody else as they cross the finish line. Oh, no, my mistake. Bolt was in it. Because um, it's <laughs> this really tight group of people really struggling for second place. And then like a second ahead is him in first place. This guy. He should just be banned from comp. Just give him all gold medals from now on. You win. Um, he's that good. And Katie Ledecky is like that in the pool. And see, these are words. These are I didn't know Katie Ledecky before two weeks ago. Now I'm talking like I know something. That's because I watched isn't, you know 25 or 30 minutes cum- cumulatively of her. Isn't Usain Bolt retiring at the end of this Olympics? That's what he said. He said he's going to run his last race. And yeah, that's know. what Phelps said too. Yeah. Um, again, but yeah. I don't think because I don't think in four years that Usain Bolt would be the favorite to win. Right. It would be it would be interesting and make for great drama. Can he at this age, you know, beat people? But you could tell on the um the two hundred, he was he was struggling. He didn't, you know, used to when he ran, it was just like, oh, oh, oh I'm done. And it was like, he was like struggling and huffing and puffing at the end of the day. I mean, he still won by a wide margin, but he had to work for that margin. Poor washed up guy of, of 30 years old. Yeah. <laughs> for a sprinter, that's old. Right. Yeah. There was the, the guy who won the 50 meter freestyle swimming uh, and he won his second gold medal. And the first gold medal was in that same race in the Beijing Olympics in uh, not Beijing. No, it was, it was 12 years ago. Uh, so it was four Olympics ago. Um, he won the only two medals he've ever, ever won at 15. And again, at 37 um, <laughs> or something, whatever, however those numbers add up. Uh, but right. it was 16 years apart. Uh, it's kind of amazing. Yeah. Um, all right. Enough about the Olympics. I, uh, well, I say enough about the Olympics, but I'm not, I, I've been, as I've told you before, I'm a cord cutter now. And, uh, in the last month, the first month that we moved into this new house and I, and I cut the cord was also my kid's last month of summer break. So uh, I'm on Comcast now and, and I'm metered uh, and I have a, t- uh, a, a one terabyte uh, limit. And one terabyte is pretty generous, honestly. But when you've got three kids uh, and, you know, and the mom and there's, there's three or four things streaming constantly, we got really close to that, uh, that limit at the end of the month. I, I'm not, we were over 850. Uh, um, and I was really worried that we were going to go over it this month for the last 17 days, we've only watched the TiVo, which, you know, over the air, the Olympics, literally, that's the only thing that's been on at our house. And, <laughs> and that's all we've watched. And because it's, it's one of those cool things that we just love to watch the, the pomp and circumstance. And frankly, I wish the announcers wouldn't 
do the packaging. They they think that's that's all there is to it, right? The only reason you watch is because you hear the story about the the orphan kid from Botswana. Frankly, I just like watching the best in the world do what they do. Uh, and I've been a big volleyball fan all my life. I mean, uh, Karch Karai, who's the coach now of the the women's volleyball, I, I remember him in the eighties being Ascension yeah, Smith, right? Yeah, that was Smythe, yeah, being the most. The, they were just amazing. I loved to watch them. Uh, way back, and that was when you could turn on the television on Saturday afternoon and watch uh, just regular beach volleyball, not Olympic. Uh, I'm a huge bo- volleyball fan, and I've been really frustrated with the fact that they will take you know 15 minutes away to talk about a swimmer who lied um, while there's a game going on, and say, "All right, now let's get you back to the action and then show you the last match point." And that frustrates me. Um, but I think that NBC thinks that's the only reason people watch, and maybe they're right. Unfortunately, they probably are. All right. Um, yeah, let's talk about movies first. The X Men. I'm guessing you're talking about the uh, the Age of Apocalypse or whatever that yes. one is. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's made its way to the Dollar Theater, which is now weirdly enough like a dollar seventy one. Why wouldn't you just make it either a dollar seventy five or two? Because it was like it was like price for whatever a dollar seventy one. I thought, oh, okay, with taxes or whatever, that's going to be two dollars. But no, it was a dollar seventy one, and I got back twenty nine cents. And I'm like, why? <laughs> why would you do that? But anyway, um, so I saw I I really enjoyed it. It was um, I think, and there were there were a couple of lines in there where they were obviously making fun of the franchise, um, because you know it's set in the like in the late seventies, early eighties, and so they go. One scene of them is coming out of the movie theater, Return of the Jedi, and they were talking about which one was better, Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back. You know, Empire Strikes Back was the best. You couldn't have it without the groundwork laid in the first one, as somebody else says, but we can all agree the third one was the worst. And so, obviously, a reference to the X-Men 3, The Last Stand. And yes. uh, so, but I was, it was a really good movie. I was, um, I was I was impressed with how good it was. I very enjoyable. Uh, it's on my list. I'll see it because I it's X Men and I have to. But uh, it's it's probably going to come in a red envelope for me. Yeah, and um, I also realized I am too old to drink an entire large soda before the movie starts, <laughs> and uh, because I was like, I'm not going to make it. I was like, come on with the slow part before right. the fight starts, and then so I couldn't even run to the bathroom which was like on the other side of the theater i had to like kind of slow walk and uh so yeah i'm I'm getting old man i used to could drink sodas after sodas and hold it for hours but not anymore yeah. there's a website man, i think it's a phone app too called run p that will tell you when there are good times to run and pee a man is not a camel <laughs> <laughs> I, I acted like i was when i was younger I mean, I used to go all night and pee for 20 minutes in the morning, but not anymore. There's, it's, it's a thing with getting older. Um, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but uh, a couple of weeks ago, we spent a lot of time talking about uh, CoinCE, the website, uh, the Ponzi scheme uh, that we told you was probably going away soon. Yeah, it looks like they're folding up their door. They've decided they no longer want micro-investors. you got to have 500 bucks to throw at it. And they promise you 180% return in 10 days. Yeah, that's sustainable. Yeah. And 
as I go in, try, you know, and so I, me, Mark, both were already up. So if we don't get any money out, we haven't lost anything, but I'm trying to do those last couple of withdrawals to maximize the amount of money I can take out of there. And like they promise withdrawals within 48 hours. Well, it had been like 51 or so. And so I filled out their little support form. Not that I'll ever hear anything back from it. And then a few hours later, I go back. And my pending withdrawal had been canceled and the money was dumped back into my funds thing. And then when I tried to do another withdrawal, the site conveniently went <laughs> offline. Um, and then later it was back up. And so I was able to get the withdrawal in. You know, these are, these are the trademark symptoms of this site is going away, but they're still looking for those last few suckers to put in 500 bucks. So stay away from coin CE, you know, unless you have too much money. And if you are, go to the forums and use my referral code just in case. So, but yeah, stay away. It, it's going out. And, you know, since I was up, I'm playing around with a couple of others just to see if I can, if I caught them early enough. Have you, have Miles done any gambling? Like, and this is gambling. This is no different than a slot machine. Have you done any experience with that? I am way too fearful, fearful of doing gambling at any level. And, and yet the weird thing is I have a very large Bitcoin portfolio. So I don't know. I just don't don't gamble. I'm just scared to. All right. Um, so yeah, I've I've been gambling with. Uh, by the way, your camera's not working. You might want to cycle that oh, off okay. and back on. Um, I, I I put. I think I started with fifty bucks, and and I'm up uh, a few dollars. And so I've been playing with house money. But yeah, it looks like this uh, this casino is about to get busted by the feds. Yeah, go run, run with the money. There's places to put it that you can do really well with. Yeah, and you know, and and it's not. I don't want you to think that's my entire investment uh, portfolio. I, I I am investing in real <laughs> things, but you know, why not take 180 percent profit while you can get it, knowing that it's going to collapse on you eventually? It's the poor suckers who don't know it's going to collapse on them eventually that causes problems. Right. All right, moving on to some mini rants, or one particular mini rant. Kirk, um, who has been, become a, a regular uh, commenter, I'm sure we'll be hearing from him a lot. He commented on, I think it was show 246, about uh, uh, the concept of technological unemployment. And I said that he, uh, he welcomes our robot overlords. It says, another great show, guys. There are a few thoughts on drones being the future of delivery. Technological unemployment, apparently conned, uh, coined by Keynes, in 1930 is inevitable, but the rate at which it's happening may not lead to a natural workforce evolution any longer. It's becoming harder to invent jobs to replace the old ones. And a lot of people have to resort to the recreational economy, singing, acting, broadcasting, etc. Um, heck, Japan is thinking about eliminating waiters in, in only one or two restaurants so far. One become, could come, become very specialized with all the educational costs involved if they want to remain relevant and maintain income. But how realistic is that for most people? And given the glut of unemployed college grads, it seems like more schooling isn't the answer either. We don't have blacksmiths anymore because they became obsolete. But the difference between manually hammering metal and having a machine do it is not much of a difference as having to become a hardware programmer after being a bank teller or a drone navigator after being a delivery driver. The depletion of qualified workers and entry-level positions, plus millennials' overwhelming urge to remain independent, has been steadily pushing us toward the crowdsourcing economy. Untrained, part-time workers with no interest in a career get to work only when they want to. Uber, Postmates, Mechanical Turk, DoorDash are examples of this. They have more freedom, but no benefits and endure a lot of wear on their cars, if it's something like Uber. We could call it the non-commitment uh, or part-time economy. 
Here's, uh, here's some tinfoil hat material for Seth. I remember the author being pessimistic on whether we remain relevant in the workforce, assuming working should be our goal and not escaping the need to work ever. Race against the machine, how the, divided, how the digital evolution is accelerating innovation by driving productivity and irreversibly transforming employment and the economy by Berenger Frosch, Eric. Uh, Berenjolfsson. Wow. Um, I think Eric is the first name. Yeah. Eric yeah. Berenjolfsson. Uh, anyway, uh, that is a long, the longest title ever. Uh, only uh, coming second is his last name. Race Against the Machine, colon, how the digital revolution is accelerating innovation, driving productivity, and irreversibly transforming employment and the economy by Brinjolsum, Eric Brinjolsum. Uh Maybe boredom and the urge to feel useful again will send humanity to the stars after we've exhausted our practical purposes on Earth. That or the impending environmental destruction. In all, I don't know if we should be concerned, but I'm leaning towards that conclusion. Um. I, you know, I've, I've opined about this in the past before. Nobody misses the blacksmith. Nobody misses the gaslight guy. I mean, there was a guy whose job was to go around and light gas lamps. You know, nobody misses the bellhop really uh, anymore. These are jobs that, uh, that technology and society both have, have gone away with. You know, the, there's no technology that has replaced the team of people that used to come out and wash your windows when you filled up with gas and check your tire and check your oil. That used to be four or five part-time people. What killed that was societal changes. Those four or five part-time people wanting $15 an hour. That's what killed that. So you can't always blame technology. Sometimes it's a societal change. Um, and I don't, I don't mourn those sort of things. It is just the way things go. Um, however, I am in a, uh, a field where I'm probably going to be pretty much safe for the rest of my career. Uh, machines aren't going to be programming themselves, uh, I don't think, in my lifetime. So maybe I can be a little more uh, laissez-faire about that. But I just see that as, as just the way it is. Times change. You know, we don't have wheel rights anymore. We don't need them anymore. We don't have uh, farriers anymore. Um, well, there are a few, but not many. Uh, so, you know, it's just a thing, and it doesn't bother me. Miles, what do you think about it? Um, well, I've got to commend Kirk because I think his observations are pretty good. Um, I don't know if I'd be as kind of thousand-foot view over this whole thing. I sort of look at everything from a simple supply and demand curve, and it's really up to all of us to have skills or to have something to offer society that society wants. And, it and yeah, it changes. And the one thing about technology is you sign up for that whole principle that things are going to change, so you're going to constantly evolve with it. And if you've accepted that and that you embrace it, then this could only be a good thing. Uh, and you're going to end up being in a situation where you're in demand and everyone else isn't. So I don't know, maybe that's a bit kind of libertarian, but I think at the end of the day, um, those that are relying on jobs where the employer provides them everything uh, and are shirking the responsibility they have for their own personal demand by not, you know, tooling up new education, becoming fresh with whatever's in demand at the time, yeah, they will be the unfortunate victims of this whole thing, and unfortunately, everyone else have to sort of pick them up. There's one other um, direct effect of this, though. If you're the boss, or you're the shareholder, or you know you own the company, um, when you see the opportunity to lay off workforce and put robots in place, you're going to jump that because that meets your capitalistic requirements. So. We have to be aware that there will be a continual and ongoing shift of revenue where the rich get richer 
and those that aren't keeping up with this sort of thing are going to be the, the victims falling on the wayside. Seth, I can see you're thinking there. The wheels are turning. I've got to quit and go study. Bye. <laughs> so, uh, no, I mean, you know, Miles makes excellent points and I, I don't know. It's just, it's like there's less and less people are required to provide essential services and more and more people are having to come up with other ways to be relevant. You know, it's like, which population is larger professional football players or people who talk about and comment on professional football players um you know it's almost like you don't need the football players anymore you need all the commentators because they've become the important and driving thing and you know you don't need technicians anymore because the hardware's better and the software's better so they don't break as much so therefore the skills to rec- the it takes a larger pool of them to provide somebody income so there's less room for less technicians who are the future developers and programmers so i don't know times they are changing and i would hate to have been born a century before where i had to really work all the time but at the same time a century before i'd been able to do the same thing all my life and here in technology you really can't do the same thing because what i learned 15 years ago you know, wouldn't employ anybody in the technology field these days. But so. interesting, your point about uh, uh, football. Uh, in in the NFL, there are 32 teams with 52-man roster. So a little quick math there, about 1,650 NFL players at any one point in time ever. That's the max you can have. Uh, but it's a multi-billion dollar industry. So it's it's not that the, the importance of the single uh, uh, employer employee you know in this case the the nfl player um doesn't necessarily uh have anything to do with the amount that can be made in that business um you know i was reading a, a popular science article written in like 1957 um i wasn't reading it in 57 it was written in 57 and one of the things that it was uh uh said one of the lines i remember was by the year 2000 technological advances will improve to the point where men will only need to work 20 hours a week and, uh, you know, anybody who's a professional now considers, you know, a 40 hour week, a part time job, you know, uh, uh, and that's one of the things I, I hear. If you if you talk about having put in your 40 hours a week and it's time to go home, you're not a real professional. You're you're working a mick job and and, you know, 40 hours a week. Nobody, no real professional works 40 hours in a week anymore. That's just not the way it goes. Uh, and if you're complaining about your 40 hour week, you're part of the problem. Having now. OK, now stepping off my my soapbox there. The uh, if we did the amount of work that a businessman did in 1950, we'd work 15 hour weeks. We'd work 10 hour weeks. It's not that the technology hasn't fulfilled its promise. It's that because it has, we've demanded more. Now we've uh, you know we have these force multipliers of technology. Think about what you can do with a a $500 uh, color laser printer and a, a you know $50 uh, well a $250 Chromebook. For you know, for less than a grand, you can displace uh, sixty typesetters and printers from 1950. Um, so it's it's we're, these technology is always going to be a force multiplier. It's not a replacement. It never is. But if you're if you're one of the guys who doesn't get multiplied, you see it as a displacement. But it never is. It's always a multiplier. It makes somebody better at what they do. It makes you know the that welding rivets 
on the line at Ford for 16 hours a day. Uh, it, it takes his, it takes that drudgery away, and now that guy can do um, you know a hundred cars uh, at a time because he's running the welding machine instead of running the welder. That's a force multiplier. Now, if you're the hundred welders, you look at it from the wrong perspective. But uh, like Miles, I, I think you got to make sure that you're always the guy who's who's multiplied and not the guy who's divided. And that's not easy, but it life never is. So that you know, just deal with it. Yeah, I think one of the other things that's happened is we've seen these sort of extreme um, booms and busts constantly over the last, say, twenty years, um, and we've seen this gold rush mentality towards things, whether it be the internet or telecommunications, cryptocurrency, whatever it might be. Um, I've always lived by the rule that in the gold rush, I want to be the guy selling shovels. So it's just about trying to predict the next wave and being positioning yourself to be in the right place at the right time. And you should never, ever think that you are safe in your job. You just There's no such thing as safety in the te- technologically advancing world. Rick in the chat room says, I personally made sure I got a degree, computer science, outside my work field, aviation. Even now, with a good job, I keep my programming skills up just in case. Currently studying C-sharp and .NET. Just makes sense. That's the attitude you got to have. Good on you, Rick. Um, and the, the people who listen to this show, they get that. I'm preaching to the choir here. Uh, there's, you know, there's not a lot of uh, Bernie Sanders, forgive my college loan people listening to this show, because I would have offended them to death long ago. Um, but the point is, um, like, you know, uh, Miles said, you got to try to, to stay ahead of the curve and try to predict that's dangerous work, but even, even not trying to predict, but see what is new and go there. You can judge a nascent market. It's, it's very, very hard to know what's going to be, but it's not hard to look around and see what is becoming, find out what is becoming and go there. That's why I work in healthcare. Now I, I looked around a few years ago and said, Oh, that's what is becoming. That's where things are going to be. So I left where I was and moved a new field. Now, I took a set of skills with me, but I also had to learn a whole different set of skills. Uh, and I was talking with somebody just last week who was new uh, to, the, to the workforce, and I told him, you know, four years ago, I didn't know anything about this. I didn't know uh, what any of these words meant. I knew nothing. And he was like, I, I never would have known that. You, you are the expert on the team now. And yes, that's because I worked my butt off and I didn't clock, put in my eight hours and go home. Um, and, you know, yes, I have a particular set of skills, skills I've earned over years and I will find you. No, I have a particular set of skills that are useful for that. I can, I can pick things up, but at the same time, I, I leveraged what I knew and learned what I didn't know. And so now I'm, you know, I'm stable, I'm secure. Maybe in 10 years, you know, I had been at my previous job 15 years, maybe in another 15 years, I'm going to be, you know, 60 years old and starting over again. That's the world we live in, but you got to be ready. You got to be able to start over again. And if you think you're going to, you know, start it at the company at, at 20 and retire with your gold watch at 65, that just doesn't happen anymore. Seth, what are your thoughts? No, I mean, you're nailing it right on the head. So, uh, the, the one, the one unchangeable law is that change is coming. So, and, change has always come the other unchangeable law is that the pace of changing is increasing so you know going back how many accountants are needed anymore when you can set up a formula in an excel spreadsheet and boom 
you know, what used to take, you know, you had to get this number from over here and then you had to go over here and get this other number and then you had to figure out how much this costs. And then, and now you can have all of that work poured into one Excel spreadsheet where the numbers are entered and the work is done for you. So there's, you know, I mean, yeah, that there's opportunities out there, but I guess the opportunities look different and used to, you could show up and work. Now you have to spend the time learning so you'll know what to do when you show up and work saying, I've got, you know, I've got two strong arms and a good back. Let me help you tear down this building isn't enough anymore. Now you've got to know how to program the robot that's going to tear down the building that is being built now. So I don't know, you know, yes, I don't really have a point. I don't know what I'm saying. So y'all are right. You picked a good example, Seth. If you can make XL sing and dance, you can get a job. And it doesn't take any schooling. It doesn't take any, you know, a five-year degree. It doesn't take any of that. It takes Google and a copy of Microsoft Office that you can download without paying for if if you're willing to do that. Um, And and that's it. Um, And there are people whose whose livelihood they 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 uh earn they they earn their keep wow i just had a little mini stroke right there on the air um (laughs) there are people whose livelihood depends on their ability to to create a pivot table and to make excel sing and dance um and you know i'm one of those guys where i work i i just love spreadsheets i i'm sorry i'm a geek i i get into spreadsheets and so anytime a problem comes up i whip out a spreadsheet for it and that's one of my skills. That's one of the reasons I'm considered, you know, an important person where I work is because I can I can use that tool. Now, I never took a class in Excel. I don't there's no degree for that. Maybe there is. I never took it. It's it's Google and and time. There's and you know, sweat equity. And anybody can make themselves indispensable in one thing. They just got to find out what that thing is and spend a lot of time doing it. Yeah. Well, I didn't expect that uh, email to go in that direction, but Kind of cool. Glad it did. Um, so uh, to talk a little bit about uh, security, we're, let's jump in the uh, the uh, the topic there. And uh, Miles brought this. Uh, it's a YouTube video, and I'm sure that there's a title, but um, it's he didn't list it in the notes. It's okay. He's a rookie. He doesn't know. Oh, sorry. Um, but it's essentially a 15, uh, 16 minute video of hackers breaking into the U.S. power grid for reals. That's the name of it. Watch hackers break into the U.S. power grid. Yeah, that's scary, isn't it? I watched this thing, and it's Red Team filming themselves doing a penetration test. And, man, these guys are really good. And this is not... We're not talking they sat back and hacked the firewall. This is physical penetration. They jumped over barbed wire. Oh, yeah. These guys are like ex-military. Right. Um, And... (laughs) <laughs> that one of the things that we've talked about on this uh, show before is so many supposed hacks start with step number one, get root access on the console. Um, and we kind of laugh that off. That's not a real security, uh, cybersecurity hack. That I mean, if you got to get there, it's a different kind of security problem. But these guys demonstrated that. They, they walked in and got root access on the console. Um, and so... Uh, let's let's use that as a jump-off point of security. So So Miles is... A security pro, I'm not. Seth is is not, and and you listening are not either. So I want to take this into what does the regular guy need to know about security? Not not change your passwords and not uh, you know don't click on things sent to you. But what's the middle ground between worrying about the power grid? Because you and I can't do anything about the power grid, um, other than elect better people. 
Um, and and in case in that case, election even we have to hire. You know, I don't even know if election could do anything there. Regulation. This is just this is private industry, most of it. So, but what we do have, you know, I'm sad to say, people listening to this show, some of you educated, intelligent people, still have a, a Wi-Fi access point out there somewhere where the the login is admin admin. You can admit it. We're among friends here. It's true. Um, but but aside from those little things, what does a regular guy need to know about security? Not just in in your house, but in your data somewhere else, like you know, Dropbox, things like that. So, that open ended question, Miles, go. Well, there's two parts to security. Uh, let's assume you're on the defending side. So, per, the first part is that you've got perimeter level security, where anything from the outside you don't want to allow in, unless you know it's coming and you know what to expect, and that's where a firewall plays in, in a role, right? So it blocks all malicious traffic, unknown traffic. You only allow certain ports. You only allow certain access, that sort of thing. Let, let me stop and, you real, real quick. Okay. What, what you said there seems elementary, but it took us 30 years to get there. When all this technology was invented, it was a blacklist-only method. Everything comes in except the thing, things that we don't want in. And it wasn't until the mid-'90s that we flipped that to a whitelist model, so this is not <laughs> this is not an age old problem. And and some of the smartest people in the world, uh, when they got together, it, we we've talked about it many times that you're focusing on does it work, not is it secure. So we have an infrastructure that was built with security as an after after afterthought. Um, and so we're now trying to go back and lock down things that were never designed to be secure. All right, continue, right. please. The obvious um, firewall metaphor would be like. A- castle walls with a couple of guys guarding the main door you know the main gate where everyone comes in so there's some form of scrutiny that as to what comes in the castle but the assumption is that nobody's scaling the walls and that the walls don't have cracks and that there isn't you know tunnels underneath that allow people in so let's assume that that our home network has one single point of entry in what we would normally call ingress so this is where stuff comes in the problem is most people don't even test that that gate. They don't test that firewall. They don't assume the firewall has got default passwords. You know, they, they think they've got it under control. Um, they shouldn't. They should. There are tools out there that are free and open source that they can use to effectively attack their firewall and see if anything has opened up a gate they don't know about. Um, Nmap's a great example of that. Just a simple port scan. And at the end of the day, if you do it from outside and you port scan your, your home, you'll see what the rest of the world sees. And probably 50% of the time you get a bit of a shock because you're like, oh, I didn't realize this was open. Yeah, you, you installed TeamViewer on a computer and that happens. Uh, don't do that. So stuff like that. And it's just, you know, we're in this constant world of wanting simplicity we want um, convenience and so we put all these things on our computers and we don't realize what we open up Um, it's also important to realize that firewalls are a two-way street there's data coming in that we want to block unfortunately we don't block data going out so anything that is on the inside of the castle and we want to go out to it is usually 
Teflon coated, right? Are you, you, no one blocks outgoing. We only block incoming. So then you go back in time and, and you look at history and you see the story of the Trojan horse. You see that something that was allowed in has now deposited itself in the castle and is now at the, you know, three in the morning when everyone else is asleep. It's out there. It's opening the gate and it's letting all their friends in. Yeah, so let me interject here for, for just problem. a second. Um, the, the, the firewall blocking outbound traffic, like, like I said, we didn't start doing firewalls until like 95, 96, you know, and we, they didn't become standard like Windows XP firewall wasn't turned on until 2005, 2006, somewhere around there. So we're talking a decade, right? Um, and, and the XP, for example, the XP firewall, uh, and still in Windows today, well, allows everything out. The The concept of blocking internal traffic didn't come to the enterprise until post-2000. Uh, it was It's a, a relatively recent thing. Somebody thought, oh, let's do that. Uh, f- f- enterprise firewalls didn't have the ability to block outbound traffic. It just wasn't built in. Most home firewalls today, it's not there. It's not a feature. Um, if you bought something, you know, some blue box something or whatever, even if it's a good one, there's a good chance there is no capacity for blocking outbound traffic. And that's, you know, that's where we're talking about the, the Trojan horse thing. At this point, the human, the wetware is the weakest point because, you know, they're, uh, almost all attacks now are spear phishing or phishing attacks where you get the user to do the thing that you want, the Trojan horse. All right, continue on. Well, you're exactly right. And the problem is that we're in this world where we constantly want to invite more things into the castle. And the biggest three letters behind that is IOT. Every single thing that we buy from a retail hardware store that's a smart electric switch or a light switch or this for the sprinklers or whatever it might be, is potentially a Trojan horse reaching out beyond our firewall and talking to the outside world and letting all their friends in. And we are trusting the manufacturers to do the right thing and not do that sort of thing, and we know how that ends up. (laughs) So, (laughs) now, here's a really interesting uh, story I saw recently. Um, It was about a guy, or I I believe a company in New York, that have uh, found out weaknesses in printers. Now, we all probably have laser printers or inkjet printers or all-in-one printers or something like that in our home. Well, they're actually little computers. And in them, they have CPUs and they have RAM and they have some form of storage. And at the end of the day, they're all vulnerable because nobody ever attempted to secure their HP LaserJet printer. So what happens is that these guys have been able to target these devices and implant dormant malware inside those devices. And this is the particular story I was looking at was in a more sort of a corporate kind of almost you know, Cold War spy sort of story. But what was happening was the software on these printers were often in offices. And the common thing these days in offices is that everyone has voice over IP. Nobody uses the old traditional uh, plain old telephone system lines because they're not, not cost effective. So if you think about voice over IP, Everybody's desk has a phone on it. And what is that phone? It's a little computer with RAM and storage and a processor and SIP traffic. And that's your phone. Well, it also happens to be a microphone. Because even though when you pick up the handset and talk into it, you also have a hands-free option on there with a speaker. Well, 
what's happening is that these guys deposited on the printer a bunch of malware that would then reach out to every single phone throughout the uh, organization. It would read the extension, read any information it can get off, like caller ID and so on, for that device. And then it would manipulate the microphone to turn on the microphone as required and record any open audio in the room. So you're surveilling this office. So it might be trade secrets, it might be management meetings, it could be chairman of the boards talking to somebody, who, who, whatever you, you find. It's just audio, right? So here's the real amazing thing. Okay, you get all this information, this, this audio. Well, that's a lot of data. And it's going to be really obvious if you start pushing out large pockets of data, packets of data, and so going out from these printers. So what this guy did was he had designed some software that would actually do like a, a voice-to-text conversion. So it would read the audio in the office, convert it to text, and then could pump the text out because, of course, it's light. There's no uh, major uh, bandwidth triggers or anything like that. Well, they even went one step further. They realized that some of these printers have the ability to make certain noise based on moving their um, uh, I don't know, drums and, and all that sort of thing around, they were able to work out that you could actually make this controlled noise with electromagnetic interference that could be picked up by radio with just on the outside of the building. So what would happen is at two in the morning, they'd, they'd park a car outside of the building with a, with a radio receiver and they'd receive these audio noises that were coming from these printers that happened to be Morse code that would take the audio recorded and send it out, thereby getting the data out of the office into the bad guys and not even using the network to get it out. Completely air-gapped. That's crazy. It's, this, is, this is real life. This is not some fictional Jason Bourne thing. This is real stuff. Now, how does that affect us? I mean, you know, we're just guys, right? Well, probably nothing, but maybe you don't have the voice to text, but you've got printers, and you might have, you know, a Vonage phone, or you might have a SIP phone at home, or something like that. All these things are introductions to bad guys putting stuff into our homes and, in, and into our offices. And I don't want to sound like Mr. Freakout, you know, FUD sort of guy, but we have to be aware that everything that we allow in should at least have some sort of sanity check on it as to, A, do we really need it? And B, do we really trust and understand the manufacturer and the risks associated with having it in, in our homes? Yeah, so Rick in the chat room says he was talking with his neighbor about all of his IoT stuff, uh, and he uh, brought up the point, uh, idea of a security hole, and, and the neighbor was like, what are they going to do, water my lawn? And and that's that's the thing. people. When they think about IoT security and whatever, they always think about the thing uh, and its intended purpose. Um, very rarely is a hacker interested in using a piece of equipment for its intended purpose. Uh, they want to work out the unintended purposes, the unintended co consequences. And so, yeah, you bring in um, that Wi-Fi printer that's connect directly connected over the Internet. Um, and, and I've got one of those, and I can print over the Internet to my printer, and it's really cool. But I've also brought in something that's directly connected over the internet that has 
access to my network. So, you know, it's a, it could very well be a Trojan horse. It's in my, in my network, on my network, connected to the same land that, that I do my banking on, um, but also connected to the internet automatically. It just happens. Isn't that cool? It just happens. I don't have to do anything, which means I also don't have any control over it. And I don't know what it's doing. Um, and so, and, and I've got one of those and it was great. It only cost me like 90 bucks and the ink is 300. Um, and it's a, it's an, it's an, a great little thing, but as we get more and more of those things and, and even, you know, the phones, the, the Roku's, you know, what, what is your Roku? Your Roku is a smartphone. It's, it's the same processor as a smartphone. Anything your smartphone can do, your Roku could do. We trust the developers to have secured it, but we have no idea. We have no tra- uh, transparency into that. We have no clue. And, you know, those, not to pick on Roku, but those are things that everybody has, you know, all of the, the Roku, Amazon, Fire Stick, uh, uh, Chromecast, they're all over the place. And they're full-on computers. And we talked about the Samsung story with the smart TVs, where they literally recorded every word you said and sent it over the web to Samsung, where they would then modify and they would hash it to see, oh, was he asking for service or not? But how hard would it be for an Internet of Things to intercept or copy that transmission? And honey, what's our bank password? You know, what's this? What's that? And have access to all the things. Because it's like you say, you know, your television isn't designed for banking, but it has a microphone so you can talk to your TV. And then this other thing has an SMTP server so it can get updates. And the next thing you know, your IOT has become, you know, Trojan of Trojans of things. And, you know, we're living in the cyber world. I think Internet of Trojans is what you were going for. You were so close. <laughs> you could I mean, you can think about any device about, outside of its intended purpose, TVs, your refrigerator, whatever it might be. It's a dormant computer that has access to a network on the inside of an organization that can sniff out a computer and can install a keylogger on it, right? That's all it needs to do. So it doesn't have to be doing anything directly, but indirectly it's an inside agent doing the intention of the bad guy. And so I know you're listening right now and you're thinking, well, I'm not a Fortune 500 company. I don't have anything. If they cleaned out my bank account, what would they get? A couple thousand dollars. I'm not a target. Probably. But, you know, if I can, if a, if a bad guy can drive into a cul-de-sac and hit 15 neighbors uh, along that street and clean out a thousand dollars from each of their bank accounts, that's a pretty good score. And you don't have to be, uh, you know, the big, the big target to be a target, um, you know, and you know, your, your, your average Starbucks is a cesspool of, of wireless traffic just waiting to be cleaned up. And don't forget that, you know, the best thieves aren't going to take your entire bank account because then you would know something is up, but people don't check their statements. And when I say people, I don't mean every single person. I mean, the vast majority of people, they won't notice an 867 transaction every month, especially if you randomize it, it's 867 this month, 921st that month. And you get that 15 or 20 people having three or four credit cards each, you know, one cul-de-sac has made that hacker a retirement stream, you know, and he can hit one city and he can be a millionaire in a month. And and we know this happens because there's, uh, there's reports of, in, of company, credit card companies, banking companies doing that very thing. Phone companies, 
sticking you with charges. Uh, was it AT&T or Verizon? One of the big guys recently got hit with a lawsuit saying that they were doing that very thing, just tacking a couple dollars on every month, hoping nobody noticed. And that's a, that's a multi-million dollar company who had no reason to have to do that. You think the, the, you know, the guy who just lost his job to a robot and is mad about it might have reason to do that? <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's also, I think, unfair to put a lot of uh, attention on the human factor and, and this whole concept of, you know, don't open attachments in your email and all that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, sure, you don't want to do that. That's low-hanging fruit stuff. The problem is that you can't, as an individual, be held accountable for buying product X from Best Buy, whoever, bringing it into your home and then realizing that it's got some zero-day vulnerability and some, you know, hacker in St. Petersburg, Russia is targeting your house to load it with malware, sit it dormant there for six months, and then at some point, you know, they flip the switch and the thing does all the bad stuff. How can you be responsible for that? You can't. I mean, you don't know it's happening. The only thing you're doing is just trying to live in the 21st century. And one um, simple thing that you can do um, right now, and so we've, we've scared you, now what can we do? A really easy thing that you can do that doesn't cost much money is buy a second wireless router. And most, anything that you paid more than 50 bucks for is going to have an option on it to, uh, I forget the exact verbiage, uh, but you, you can separate the wireless traffic so that no wireless device on the on the network can talk to any other wireless device on the network. They have to go out through the main connection to do that. So if you set up, um, you know, a really simple setup where you've got all your IoT things uh, segregated uh, automatically so that they can't communicate with one another. I'm going to log into my firewall right now and see what the DDWRT people call it because I can't remember. Uh, but uh, so if you've got your uh, stuff there uh, segregated, um, and you've got your computers, your regular computers on another thing and your phone on another network, but your IOT stuff specifically, and that printer counts as an IOT specifically that all they can do is talk out to the internet. That's really simple. It's only gonna cost you about 50 bucks, you know, uh, and it's really easy to do and you can, uh, really help a lot just doing that one little thing right there so that those devices can't talk to each other and they can't talk to anything else. Um, any thoughts on that guys? No, just me. Well, I mean, oh, AP isolation. That's what DDWRT calls it. AP isolation means that when you talk to the access point, that's all you talk to. And of course the access point then talks to the internet. So all your IOT stuff works. They just can't talk to your computer. There's your Roku doesn't need to talk to your computer. It only needs to talk to the internet. And that's what, you know, corporations do with VLANs. They just have the really expensive switches, and they're called VLANs. For the home user, it's you're segmenting your network. I mean, that's um, different names for it, but you've segmented your network where one segment can't talk to the other segment, and then you've increased your security. Well, also, the, the, the thing is that you don't want to be a target. Um, I'm going to make some assumption here that as much as the press has kind of grandiosed a lot of stories like the Samsung story and so on, uh, most of the large manufacturers have way too much to lose uh, by intentionally uh, installing software in their devices that would, um, you know, affect your privacy and affect your freedom. It's just not worth it from a legal standpoint for them. It's bad PR and so on. 
But what they often don't do and is they rush things into the market because they know they've got certain sales cycles they want to meet, whether it be the holiday sales, Thanksgiving sales or whatever, and they rush these products in with firmware that has open vulnerabilities. Now, if you buy a very popular product, say a you know, major brand TV or a major brand, um, I don't know, controllable electric switch or something for an IoT thing, um, what you're doing is you're making the assumption that that company has QA that has adequately tested for as many vulnerabilities as they possibly can get. Um, and I think that the problem is they don't. So the bigger the company, the more popular the device, like the Amazon, whatever that thing you talk to is, I can never remember. Okay. Alexa, right? Yeah. Things like that, they're targets. And they're really prized targets because they, there's a lot of them out there. So if you want to go ahead and get that, make sure you do your research to verify that that product has no known security vulnerabilities. And also realize that purchasing that product is purchasing the obligation to update firmware on the device. If the device does not allow you to update firmware, then don't buy it. Because at the end of the day, you're putting all your faith and trust that their engineers who are motivated to get this thing out into the, you know, to ship it, um, that they've done their due diligence and they've done their protection, they've done their QA. And look, I'm a software engineer. I understand programmers like programming. They hate to test. They will give that job to a QA guy. They will give that to a tester. And the companies don't see testers as generating revenue. So what they do is for every three programmers, they have one tester. And that one tester can only do so much, and that's the problem. So you want to look at companies that have a, a good history in security and have good QA investments, and, and obviously they don't tell this stuff, but just look at their, their history. If you've got companies like Motorola, um, you know you know they've been around for a while, you know they do defense work, you know they probably know what they're doing when it comes to QA. That's probably a decent choice. I say that, and tomorrow there'll be a news story about some zero day in a Motorola device. But but some know, of the interesting uh, to uh, I'm sorry to cut you off there, but no, you don't okay. you don't breathe when you talk. Um, <laughs> some <laughs> of the interesting, uh, the most interesting stuff coming out right now is you know from crowdfunding sites. Uh, you know, uh, GoFundMe and Indiegogo, not GoFundMe. What's the other one? Kickstarter? Kickstarter. The, those guys are they're really breaking ground in the IoT space, and it's interesting. It's cool. I want that haptic fork. Um, but at the same time, these are guys who know nothing about manufacturing. They know nothing about QA and, and you're helping them learn these things, but you're also probably going to get a product that is, does it work? Not, is it safe? So, and it's, it's one of those things. It's hard to walk the bleeding edge and be secure. Those two things really don't go well together. And, and this audience is a bleeding edge kind of audience, but they're also a security minded audience. So it's, it, you, it's difficult to, to live on both sides of that fence. That's very true. I, I I don't really know if there is a simple answer to this. I think we just have to be extremely diligent about what we allow into our homes. Well, and, you know, you said the D word. I don't want to be diligent because I want to watch Netflix. I want to Facebook. I want to be able to, uh, two hours before I get home, I want to log into my Nest thermostat and make the house 27 degrees by the time I get there. I don't really care if it's secure. I care if it saves me five seconds. 
And how dare you claim I need to be, I have a responsibility in all of this. <laughs> what? You mean I have personal responsibility for my own world? No. Um, but the, the scary thing is so much of this stuff is beyond our control. Um, we're putting our faith in other people every day of the week. You know, we, we've, we've said that many times. The cloud does not mean secure. The cloud just means your stuff's on somebody else's computer. Um, and you have to decide whether you trust that somebody else. Yeah, the cloud well, is robust. Yeah. That's not the same thing as secure. Right. Well, yeah. you have to vote with your dollars, too. Uh, if you see that, you know, Volkswagens are getting hacked all over the place, don't buy a Volkswagen. I mean, I, you, I'm not specifically singling them out because there's been so many others, but, you know, we've got a big problem here. I live in Arizona, and we've had massive problems with uh, Jeeps getting stolen in the thousands because there was a flaw in their own certain models onboard uh, locking systems. And guys with laptops have been able to go around and just unlock and start up all these Jeeps that were parked, you know, locked and everything. And they just drive them over to Mexico. And uh, it's, it's rampant here at the moment. Um, thankfully, there's patches that have been released out for those cars. But other than you taking it to your mechanic and allowing them to install it, you know, everyone's running scared if they've got those sort of cars. And see, that's the double-edged sword of internet connectivity, right? If your car is not connected to the internet, it can't get updates. But also, if your car is not connected to, to the internet, it's less likely to be at attack surface. So that there's, it, in, in my case, I would not buy an IoT device that couldn't be updated over the internet. But by very definition of the fact that it can be updated over the internet, it means it can be attacked over the internet. So it's a, you got to pick your poison. Either way, you're going to be poisoned. Or if you have something that has the capability to be updated over the internet, you need to have some way to block that yourself. So that way, if you hear there's a thing, you can then connect it and do it. But if you don't want to drive around like that all the time. So. Yeah, that seems reasonable. Yeah, but, you know, there we are talking reasonable. Yeah. So that's not, you know, and we've talked about it on this show before. The, the managers are pressure, are pressuring the engineers. Does this work? Does this work? Make it work. Make it work. Make it work. And then two days before release, is there any problems? And if you say yes, you'll be gone before the product hits the door. And so people aren't going to say anything because the pressure is to get the product out the door, not to get the secure product out the door. And we want something now. We don't care if it works. We're the reason that that mentality exists. So we as a culture and companies as individuals do this all the time. We don't want to vote. We don't want to wait to see, is this secure? Okay, let's buy this one as a society. We want the first thing that comes out. And then by the time this other company gets a secure one, nobody's going to buy it because everybody bought the insecure one. And they're not going to own two of them because that's a waste of money. So let me uh, circle around to the conversation we had before with your uh, caller who brought in that email about looking for jobs. Right. Cybersecurity is a really good place to go and learn, guys. Yeah, absolutely. It really and is. It's, it's a nascent field, right? You're not having to predict. It's there. It exists. There are resources. Um, and if you can become an expert now, you can set your career. 
Um, yeah, people are there's a lot of big money in this. If we still had the Linux Academy as a sponsor, <laughs> this is the perfect spot for an app. <laughs> it is, but since since they're they're not paying me, they're dead to me. Linux who? What? No. Um, that. So let's flip this around. You you have done your due diligence, and that's all you can do. Nobody can be 100% safe, but you can do your due diligence in your own home. Um, what can you do around, and, and, and so you can't do anything, you've done what you can do in your house, you can't do anything at your bank. You just can't, other than change your bank, right? You can't do anything at your employer. You, you just can't. If your employer uh, has bad uh, security uh, print policies and your bank get, their bank gets hacked and you don't get paid, there's nothing you can do about that. What can you do? How can you ex, uh, expand your sphere of influence? Obviously, there's the friends and family plan. Everybody who listens to this show is somebody's tech support, and you can help them, you know, secure, you know, do their due diligence. Is that it? Is, do we just have to be islands in the stream hoping that other people do their job, or is there, is there any kind of meaningful advocacy that we can do? Wow. Uh, interesting question. I don't know. I just, I know we geeks like to buy the first generation of anything that comes out, you know, because that's kind of cool. We should be the ones taking on the risk of security, and maybe we should be protecting those that aren't as uh, they don't have such a threshold of pain that they can handle that that we can, and then we advise our experiences to others, and and hopefully they follow on suit. Maybe six months later, I think six months is a pretty advanced scale. I think we're I think we're and on the vanguard of uh, we're going to be beating this drum. For the rest of my life. Um, and I don't know that, that we're actually going to get anywhere. What's going to happen is eventually the math is going to save us. Numbers so hard that they can't be broken. But they're not here, there yet. Like, you know, uh, uh, IPv6 has, has been the law of the land for how many years now? How many of you have an IPv6 address? Nobody. <laughs> um, so the thing is, even once the math saves us, Inertia, the most powerful force in the universe is inertia. And the most powerful uh, type of inertia is human inertia. Once we pick something, once we choose a side, that's where we go. That, that's why all the political problems we have today. Because I chose a side when I was 18 and I'm sticking with it. You know, and, um, and that's, that's going to be a problem. And, and you know, I don't want to be just a, a, a harbinger of doom here, but this isn't going to get better before it gets a whole lot worse. Uh, and I'm, you know, I, I'm the guy who wants the gadgets. And you just need to, I guess, be aware that that when you buy a gadget, you're also buying a risk and you're increasing your your attack surface. Um, and just be aware. I think that would that would help. Just make people know that that printer is not just a printer. It is a computer. And in fact, it's a more powerful computer than those fancy there is no step three Mac uh, machines uh, that Jeff Goldblum sold. But it's now in a in a printer. And there, you just you just got to be aware of that. And I think that that most people aren't aware of the fact that they're bringing bringing in fully functional computers with a full OS and file system, uh, and sticking it out uh, on their desk and using it once a month to print something. I mean that is totally true. And unfortunately, I, I don't know. There's the the sad part to this story is. There isn't the silver bullet that makes everything okay. There is a bunch of little things 
that if we're done would seriously mitigate these risks. But that's why there is a saying, the devil is in the details. Because who wants to do the details? Who wants to read the end user licensing agreement that we click to? And by installing this, you agree to give me access to your computer on off hours to have read the entire concrete contents of it, encrypt the drive, and charge you money to let you access it later. Oh, sure, I want it because this has pretty kittens as a wallpaper. And, uh, you know, and then the next day your computer doesn't work. Why? Because you installed this app that told you what it was going to do. And yes, that's an oversimplification. But, you know, that if I were a coder or something, I would write that and stick it in the EULA just to, you know, and see what would happen. Because you know there's somebody that would click it. But there's Not somebody, the little- everybody. All the little details, if done correctly, and this would not be as big of an issue as it is. And that's the problem. It's all the little details. Yeah, we want it all and we want it now, right? Yep. You know, I've I've got my first uh, taste of computing with the TRS-80 uh, Color Computer Model 1 um, and when I was 11-ish. I'm going to go there, maybe even younger. And in that time, I have installed millions of lines of code, thousands, tens of thousands of different pieces of software. Never read a EULA. Never once. Not not one time. I'm not joking. Not one time in my life have I read an, an end user license agreement. I haven't done it, ever. I have skimmed a few, but I have never read one. The, no, the I, I, I have read it. and agree is the most commonly told lie in the world. Yeah. Miles, have you ever read a EULA? No, I mean, there's been some applications I've had to develop in the past where I've had to write EULAs, and in order to work those out, I just grabbed somebody else's, had to read through it, and said, uh, yeah, that'll work, change a few words, stick it out there, and job done. Yeah. Uh, but that's about as much attention as I give to it. If I gave it to my attorney, I'd be a poor man, so... Yeah, because they charge by the by the punctuation mark. I think right. that's how that works. Uh, by the character, I don't like doing security shows because they're always so depressing. Because all <laughs> we have is horror stories and no solutions. Hey, the world sucks. Can't do anything about it. Bye, go folks. See you next week. Um, that's why I stay away from these shows. But it's it's true. There's there's so little that we can do, and so much that we risk. Well, I used to work for a submarine manufacturer. This is a long time ago. And they would separate the the, the division that worked on combat systems, which was like torpedoes and that sort of thing, with all of the logistics stuff, which is where I worked, which is like oxygen and stuff like that, you know. Um, The combat guys were not allowed to have any network connected to anything outside of that building. I mean, it was a lockdown space. And... That was the only way that there was any form of security. They could not talk to the outside. They couldn't allow anything from the outside in. It was in total bubble. Um, but even that isn't enough because if you think about the whole Stuxnet thing that went on in Iran, that was a similar environment in which those uh, centrifuge environments were not connected to anything on the outside. What they did was they managed to get an actor who was working inside there to bring in a USB key and infected computers within the bubble. And that's what did its damage. Now, it, that payload of that didn't have to do anything on the outside. It didn't have to send any data out. All it had to do was spin centrifuges out of control and fry them. But 
it did its job for its intended purpose. Um, and I would also just add, if, if your listeners here have not seen a movie recently, just, just came out called Zero Days. I think it was Alex Gibney's movie, his latest one. Um, it's all about Stuxnet and state-sponsored actors in this cyber security world. Um, and I think it's definitely zero worth day, seeing. Not not seeing. No, no, before. zero days with a with an S. Oh, it is okay. Yeah, yeah, it, it's a little different than. Yeah, it, that caught me off guard too. But um, I, I watched it. It was really good. Um, it does go on a bit, but it's got some pretty major players uh, in there talking about how this was all put together and how it was executed and how they found out what to target. I mean, they took, you know, news videos that Iran were showing to sort of show off what they were doing with it. And they were looking, they took screen, they had video of a screen behind, you know, Ahmadinejad or whatever, and they zoomed in on it and they worked out that the software was controlling this type of device. And, and it was just a total giveaway, really. Um, but yeah, again, a network wasn't connected to anything on the internet, and yet still, they got their payload in and they succeeded. Um, and so it's not Notar, just about the internet. Yeah, the right? DigiNodar hack that um, you know they were a, a a certificate company, and that's how the they their security certificate generating machine wasn't connected to a network. But same thing, somebody in plugged in an affected device, and then. That's how they got access. So it was the exact same thing that, um, and they were used, they were able to send stuff out with it. So in that sense, it was more than Stuxnet. Um, yeah, security is important. And this is a huge employment opportunity for people. Um, I've even had discussions with, uh, representatives of our, uh, in our state here in Arizona at the House of Representatives about the opportunities to employ returning veterans and servicemen who come back with military training from Iraq, Afghanistan, and so on, and train them into domestic cybersecurity roles because their nature to want to defend and serve is perfectly suited to, to having the same level of experience in a digital world. So if any of your listeners are, you know, ex-military or they want, they lean towards that sort of thing, this is an opportunity and it's huge. All right. I think we're talking in circles at this point, so it's it's a good time to, to tie a bow around it. Um, security's hard. Most people aren't doing it right. Um, you know, eternal vigilance is the price of security. It just, it is, to paraphrase Ben Franklin. Um, and we'll talk about open sprinkler system some other time because that's, that's something else Miles wanted to talk about. Sounds like fun, but <laughs> we didn't get there. So, uh, Seth, give us some, uh, some wider news. Tell us what happened this week in history. Alrighty. So August the 22nd, 1955, the first computer user group is founded. Following a Los Angeles symposium hosted by IBM, a group of representatives from 17 groups that had ordered the IBM 704 mainframe computer met at the Rand Corporation in Santa Monica, California. The outcome of this meeting was the first computer users group named Share. 
The name was chosen to promote the idea of sharing information and programs between installations. The group grew quickly, eventually producing new software and documentation for their IBM computers. Um, user groups today are still around, but they are not nearly as important, I think, as they used to be. A lot of that importance has been usurped by the web and YouTube. Um, but user groups were a really big deal. And before there was a web, um, this is how information was shared among professionals, uh, professional computer operators. Um, so the first user group was founded this week in history, 1955. That's something I've, I've talked about before. In 1955 and all the way up through about 1990, there was no distinction between a computer user and a computer coder. They, they were the same people. Uh, and, and it wasn't really until late eighties, uh, that the concept of selling software became a thing. You shared your software because everybody, everybody had it, uh, everybody needed it. You got together, you got in these user groups and, you know, and, um, you, you wrote something and you shared it with somebody else. And, and now that's so unheard of everybody, they write something and they, uh, they want to sell it. I mean, the open source is, is. The fact that open source came out of this and is now uh, an anomaly, really, um, is is kind of sad to me that the the technology fostered communication in brand new ways, and then one of the things that we got really good at doing was siloing ourselves. One of the things that's happened with these user groups, though, is they've actually morphed into what today we would call the maker movement. Right. So, you know, I remember going to user group meetings in the early 80s back in Australia, where I'm from. And it was fun. I mean, you met great people who shared their ideas and their knowledge, and they loved to talk about what they'd achieved, what they'd learned, and you walked away more knowledgeable every single time. Um, but eventually those computers did, as you say, and they've become kind of appliances, and it's not really all that interesting. But those people are still out there. It's just they all now got Raspberry Pis, and they're out building drones and 3D printing and all that sort of stuff, and they're sharing those experiences. Yeah. I miss my drone. I haven't phoned it in, in two months. It sits in the corner mocking me. And then I walk by it twice a day and it says, Fly me. Fly me. And I just, Fly I just me to the moon. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Don't do that. Not because we'll have to pay royalties, just because that was bad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, duh. <laughs> so this is the part of the show where I tell you how you can feed back to us. Go to elementop.com, click the Contact Us button at the top of the page, uh, fill out the world's hardest CAPTCHA, uh, fill out the form there, and that will send a, a message that gets priority in my in-basket. Or you can call 559-IMOP if you would like your voice to appear right here alongside mine. Uh, you can do that, or you can send an email to elementop, excuse me, um, geekrant at elementop.com, and uh, that will uh, go to... to uh, I started to say all three of us, but yeah, I guess for another week it'll go to, to three of us, and then sadly, only two. Uh, moment of silence. Anyway, um, th we want to hear what you think. Uh, always, we want to hear what you think. And, and if, if it's good and intelligent, even more so. Uh, so tell us what you think about this whole um, is Internet of Things the end of security? I'm, I'm not, I'm almost willing to say that it is, that, that security as we understand it today has been irrevocably changed by Internet of Things. Um, that, you know, the for so long, the idea was, ma let's make computers bigger and faster, and the way you make a computer bigger is you add more computers to it. 
I mean, that's the oversimplification of how you do that. You add transistors, you, you, you take what was one computer and, and you smash them together and you take two computers and make one computer of it and you smash those together. I mean, that's the whole concept of cores. And that's been the way things have gone for so long. Now with the, the, the IOT movement, we're breaking off and we're saying, well, we don't need a really smart computer. We don't need us to have a smart house. We don't need how 9,000 controlling everything. We need a bunch of dumb stuff talking to a hub. And so that's what we're trying now. The trouble is the dumb stuff is still pretty darn smart. And if there's no central intelligence overlooking it, there's nothing monitoring what the dumb stuff is doing. So I think that the the old model of security is on the way out. It's, it's being completely destroyed by the new model of computing. And we got to find a new model of security. And we can't just have a firewall and control everything that goes in and out because there's going to be too many different ways things talk. Yeah, in much the same way that gunpowder transformed warfare, the Internet of Things is transforming computer security. That's true. All right, so anyway, let us know what you think, com. Click the Contact Us button. So now, Seth, what do you have this week to lower my productivity that's make you seeming like, you, making you seem like a higher, uh, that thing that I usually say every week? Okay, well, I thought this would be an interesting thing to share. Um, this is on a, um, it's just basically the first photo and different examples of the first kinds of photographs. So the earliest photo that we have survived is a photograph of a 17th century Flemish engraving. And then there's a first photo of uh, nature with a camera. Uh, the first negative you can see, there is even, if you scroll down this list, the first photograph that was successfully transmitted via wire. And here's the, here's the freaky thing about this. This happened in 1906. So that's Faxing a long time. Is 110 years old? Uh, yes. The University of Munich, um, on October 17th, 1906, um, photograph of somebody uh Ludopold Carl Joseph Wilhelm Ludwig von Bayern was the first photograph successfully transmitted by wire so that's I mean there's just some cool stuff in here um there's even an example of the first Polaroid instant photograph that was taken the first digital photo jpeg just so it's kind of like the first the first pictures collection of pictorial firsts i guess and one of the some of those you can't even tell what they are yeah like the the first the first photo from nature you can kind of see a tree and the horizon and some other trees behind it but yeah it's uh the negative i have no idea what that negative is first something or other which is a precursor to actual photography and then yeah just I mean, it's interesting. It's historical trivia that doesn't really mean anything, but it's the kind of stuff that I love finding about as I scour the web performing digital archaeology. All right. Fun stuff. Well done, Seth. That's good stuff. Cool. Thank you. You know, geeks, the, one of the things that defines a geek is um, an bordering on unhealthy obsession with a certain thing. And, you know, for the photo geeks out there, this is this is gold, because um, it's just it's cool. Um, I think that's all I have to say about that. So thanks for hanging out with us, uh, Miles. Uh, thank you for for coming on and uh, and sharing your uh, dizzying intellect with us. Um, 
I just, I got to give a quick plug for Audible, elementopi.com slash Audible. Uh, I'm reading a book right now, uh, i.e. listening to a book right now, called As You Wish, Inconceivable Tales from the Making of the Princess Bride. And if you are a fan of the Princess Bride, as I am, you owe it to yourself to not only, not just read this book, but listen to it. It's a, it's narrated. It's written and narrated by Carrie Ellis um, with audio from um, Billy Crystal and Chris Sarandon and Christopher Guest. And this, if you're not an audiobook guy and you think, I just can't do audiobooks, this is the audiobook for you. com slash audible, as you wish, by Carrie Ellis. I've already used my free trial. Doggone it. This would have been a great one. Well, you know, there are other email addresses. Just saying. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, Lord um, knows I got a lot of them. <laughs> so thank you, listeners, for hanging out with us, and I appreciate uh, your time. Uh, Rick and Rick and Rick, thank you for hanging out in the chat room. It's always nice to have a live audience of one. Um, we do this show every Sunday night at circa 7.30 p.m. Eastern time, uh, and we are always live, and there is a chat room, and we appreciate it if people come and hang out with us. Um, as I always say, if you like the show, tell other people about it. If you don't like the show, tell me about it. But uh, we'll see you later because that's it for this episode of The Geek Rants. Geek Rants.